Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Around the Course Squash Podcast. Today, we have quite a show. We have a first of two part interview with Alex Goff, the CEO of the PSA World Tour. And in today's part, he talks about how PSA are coping in the current circumstances and what they are trying to do to reopen the tour. We also welcome on the show Chris Fernandez, who is the Dickinson head coach of the men's and women's varsity squash teams. Chris, thanks a million for coming in. How are you doing? Thanks, thanks again, guys, for having me. Um, big fan of the podcast and what you guys are doing. Um, things things are going well, you know, taking it day by day, essentially, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to really plan ahead right now um, with all the uncertainties and question marks. But um, but yeah, things, things are well. Looking forward to the upcoming challenges of the fall semester and kind of what the squash um, season is going to look like next year, which is still up in the air. So we shall see. What have you been up to, fellas? Honey crack? Um, I mean, I, I'm slowly but surely stepping away from my Trader Joe's uh, frozen food addiction. Actually, putting meat to pan. I have to have a good, good cook off when we get back to New York. <laughs> oh no, Chris, you win. You win, Chris. <laughs> well, you never know. You you you'll have a bit of time to kind of brush up in those skills, man. Second wave. Second wave. I'll catch up. Chris will be good. <laughs> oh, let's not talk about a yeah. second wave. The best Too soon. Yeah. Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. You guys are perfecting your, your cooking. I'm over here perfecting my golf game, man. One day at a time, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were supposed to get on the course, Chris. I remember. Uh... I know, man. I know. Well, New York courses are they're not open, so we got to travel. Yeah. Chris has found his way on the course, if you know. Yeah, yeah. Big, big tournament tomorrow. So gotta got to get a nice <laughs> sleep after this and, you know, dream of birdies. <laughs> Getting the birdie train. <laughs> well, uh, we'll, we'll 73, 74 uh, tomorrow, Chris. Is that what you're shooting for? Yeah, maybe with the 13 strokes I think I'm getting. <laughs> are you uh, Are you going to pull a Bryson DeChambeau? Have you Have you been packing on the pound so you can, uh, so you can hit it 340? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Just remember, Chris, the drive doesn't matter, man. You putt for the dough, though. I know, I know. You got to putt well, man. <laughs> I mean, we've all seen Chris in the squash court. Those silky, silky soft hands will take the ball right. short. You yeah, can't you exactly hold and hit the driver, can you? I <laughs> <laughs> get it going in the right direction for it to go in the hole, though. Got to get up the tee box first, man. <laughs> There's only one shot in golf that matters to me. That's the drive off the first tee when everyone's looking. Swing a couple of good swings, and as long as that shot is good, and it doesn't matter what happens after that. <laughs> it's ensure 90 from there. No worries. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> All too often. Okay, guys, before we go any further, we're going to dip into the first of, of a two-part interview with the CEO of the PSA World Tour, Alex Goff. Today's part, Alex will talk us through some of the challenges the PSA have faced through COVID-19 and some of the obstacles in their pathway to resuming the tour. All right, uh, enjoy. Okay, everyone, it's a great pleasure to welcome to the show former world number five and current CEO of the PSA World Tour, Alex Goff. A life in squash, some of his highlights include reaching a career high of world number five, reaching the World Open semi-finals in 97 and a silver medal while representing Wales in the World Team Championships amongst many titles of a career that spanned a pretty long time. And he was one of the first to extend his career into his late 30s, which paved the way for the likes of Nick Matthew and Gaultier, etc. He retired in 08, and this coincided with him throwing himself in the deep end and becoming the CEO of the PSA. A difficult job, but a man proven very worthy of the task, and we're lucky to have such a great leader at the helm. Since becoming the CEO, the tour has grown significantly in dollars. We've seen the merging of the men's and the women's tours, which is something that the tennis tour is currently looking at. The first million dollar event in 2019, 
and the sport has never reached out to as many people, nor has it looked more appealing and beautiful on the eye as it does today. Alex Goff, I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Thanks, Avilia, for coming on the show and taking the time out to speak with us. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah, we should probably end it just there, I think. That was <laughs> quite good. Yeah, it can, it can only go downhill from here, I think. Well, I think you can uh, hold. I mean, that's, I mean, there's a lot there. It's amazing. I mean, that's, that's your <laughs> yeah. life. Yeah, no, well, thank, yeah, well, thanks, thanks for uh, having me on. Um, I've heard a couple of other podcasts, so I've got a lot to live up to. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I guess, yeah, that, it, it spans a period of time from when I was probably left university at, uh, what, what was I, 22, 23, through to uh, nearly coming up to the grand old age of 50 at the end of the year. So it spans a decent amount of time, actually, <laughs> far too long to think about, to be honest. <laughs> Any big plans for the 50th? <laughs> not anymore no <laughs> yeah we were going to have a big uh, a big do i think but uh, just hanging in there at the moment is the is the, is the main priority yeah so um we wanted to obviously get you on the show and talk about the current situation with the psa tour obviously there's a lot of uncertainty but i know you guys have been working hard to try and get the tour back on track in some form so is there anything you can tell us about that and what your plans are as we move forward over the next few months um, yeah, well, lots of yeah. It's it's obviously been an incredibly tough period for for absolutely everyone, um, and the PSA players are at the heart of that. And and having sort of you know having earning opportunities just suddenly taken away from everyone is is incredibly tough to take. You know, from from the players to the coaches to the you know to 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 everyone within the ecosystem. Really, um, I think there's there's when we we went into lockdown pretty 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 early even for the UK straight after um, we just managed to sneak through Canary Wharf and we just managed to sneak through uh, Blackball in Cairo um, and we shut the office up about a week before the UK did about March 17th and went into kind of you know almost went into planning mode straight away of you know when might we be able to start again what could we move and where could we move it and what was the um, you know what we, what could we try and sort of get back on the table again I think right at the start of that we were we were probably a bit too optimistic of, of, of how long it was going to take and, and when we could uh, when, when we could restart again. So we spent a good few weeks almost just going around in like crazy people trying to trying to get as much in place as we could. And then realized after probably four or five weeks that it was sort of almost felt like a bit of a waste, not a waste of time. That's a wrong, that's a wrong expression, but a bit futile really, I guess. So then had to go into the sort of, you know, um, damage limitation mode. So making sure the staff were all okay. Um, you know, in terms of protecting their jobs, making sure all the financial side of things was 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 solid enough for PSA to get through. Lots of financial modelling on whether we'd be back in August, September, October, you know, possibly even January, um, which was our worst case kind of scenario. Went through the whole kind of UK um, government scheme, so we sort of, you know, we put some we put some staff on furlough right back at the right back in the middle of uh, middle of April. Probably about half of the staff, then a couple more, then a couple more. And so, yeah, we're running with a really thin, you know, really quite a thin operation at the minute until until kind of July 1st when we're hoping to to sort of bring people back on track again in terms of staff-wise. So, so, yeah. It's, so what's the latest update you can possibly share with us in terms of when tournaments may resume and whether they may look a little bit different in the short term, what the implications of travel restrictions are going to be and all that? Yeah, so we've, I mean, we've been continually talking to to all of the promoters, um, and obviously, you know, we've got we've got people in the states where you guys are, and there's you know there's Egypt and there's Hong Kong and there's you know so we're you know every conversation is different. Um, everyone's at a different stage with with COVID. Um, you know, 
UK obviously one of the worst hit, US really, really badly hit. But we, you know, so the, then you obviously go on to, you know, what can we do behind closed doors? You know, what tournaments will be up for that? You know, some, some will be, some, some just don't want to entertain that at all. So we're having decent conversations with uh, with England squash and the British Open and and the, and the sponsors, Dr. Alam and, and and the family. They are open to the idea of having the British Open behind closed doors. So that's that's a huge positive. Um, Hull University are open to the idea as well. So we've still we've we've tentatively put it in at the end of August, which seems frighteningly close at the moment. Um, but obviously, when we see things like <clears throat> when we see things like the U.S. Open tennis being held pretty much exactly that spot end of August start of September you know it gives us a bit of hope the team have been working really hard on you know as as lots of other sports have on you know what would you need to put in place you know you'd have to have a medical officer and a chief you know someone that's really across all of that you know for you know for the staff and for the players and you know anyone coming in and out of that venue um I guess the the big one for us is that you know if we if we can do it behind closed doors it actually makes things quite a bit simpler, you know, um, which is obviously what the USTA have done with the US Open. You know, it's a huge undertaking, but not having to worry about, you know, in their case, tens of thousands of people coming in the door. In our case, obviously a lot less. You know, you, you can try and work on what would be a, you know, a decent event um, for the players and the sponsors. And also then the kind of the wider squash community who want to, you know, see it on squash TV and see it on the TV channel. So, we're working really hard in the background now to to try and make that a reality, but there's there's a lot of things that need to fall into place for it to to actually come off. And I would assume one of those things is the current UK quarantine restriction uh, regulations. And I'm just wondering, yeah. are you looking for some sort of government waiver, or would you require all the players to be on site two weeks in advance to to go through that process? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we'd, I think we definitely steer clear of of asking players that. I think that's that becomes too onerous. Um, and if that restriction, if that restriction does does get maintained, we would struggle. But I think the luckily there's other sports paving the way. So I know the Formula One has already has already got dispensation for the for the British Grand Prix. So the precedent has been set. Um, you know, so so as soon as a few more things fall into place that i don't see i don't see that being one of the problems i think we can um i think we can get dispensation for that um i really don't think you know unless we were asking players to come to whether it was the uk or the us for a considerable amount of time i think the two weeks the two weeks is just too tough um you know what are they gonna you know what's where are people gonna stay what they're gonna do how they're gonna pay for it um so 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 that wouldn't really necessarily be something we try and sort of work around um, we just need that. We just need that. We just either need dispensation or that to to, to go out of the window. I, from a on a per, from a personal point of view, I actually think there's going to be so much pressure in the next few weeks. I think that one will will potentially fall away anyway by by August. But yeah, that's that's more of a that's more of a guesstimate than anything. I mean, it's 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 not great when you see things like you know New Zealand don't have any cases, and then a couple of people wandering from the UK with COVID and suddenly throwing the whole thing up in arms again and they're going to close down again. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pitfalls ahead that, 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 you know, that, that we can't foresee at the minute. But uh, yeah, I, I think the main, I think the main takeaway really for us is that we've just got to do everything that we can to bring stuff, you know, to bring stuff back online, you know, as quickly as we can and as safely as we can, you know, make sure the players are all, you know, super comfortable with that. And is that something that you think might be feasible in other parts of the world where you could maybe replicate something similar and whether it's the US or Egypt or 
guess it could be anywhere, but is it something you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other big, the other big advantage of us doing the British Open first out of anywhere is obviously we, you know, we are based in the UK. We're based just up the road from Hull, um, and we can, we can, we can drive all of that, those kind of conditions, you know, firsthand. So if we then do want to get across to, you know, to Egypt or the US, we, you know, we will have, we will have had that firsthand experience. You know, the conversations in Egypt are, are pretty positive. Um, you know, they, all the events over there have a good line line through to the to the Ministry of Sports, so they're getting information all the time. So, um, you know, again, there's there's there is appetite for stuff behind closed doors, um, which is which is good. Um, I think the next stage, the next stage for us, probably in a couple of weeks' time, or when people know a bit more, is is kind of getting a bit of a feel from the players um, as to what their kind of risk risk assessments would be. You know, some people will probably just want to play. You know, and, and you know, get back out there and, and start to earn, earn some money again. And you know, there'll be other players that you know won't want to do it, or you know, just might be in a position where you know they've got a loved one at home that that they don't want to put at risk, and they they just physically can't. So we're, we're going to have to take all of that into uh, into consideration. You know, and that that would that would have a knock-on effect to, you know, what would we do with the rankings, and what would we do with points, and would you freeze rankings? Would you you know not you know you certainly wouldn't be penalising anyone. Um, but there's yeah. <laughs> There'll be a lot of head scratching in the next few weeks as to as to a route through. I think <laughs> sounds like there's a lot to yeah. there's a lot of layers to it. It's not just as a simple lot. as just you know, okay, we're going to do yeah. it, and this is what we're going to do. No, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, and what I think one of the other things that that even before we look at say an event being on, I think we we would we would be looking to try and do some sort of you know non PSA test event if possible as well so that's that's something else we're looking at for later on in kind of maybe july early august you know where we could get and again the uk is a good target because we're here but we will try and you know look at a few places that we're willing to you know obviously there was that you know the unsquashable tour down in down in new zealand where wherever we're managed to get on court and you know the guys got it onto youtube and you know they did it and you know it actually looked great i think we'd be trying other stuff like that in the, in in the next you know couple of months Although time's, but it's not, but it's time's moving, guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> any any clubs that are, any clubs that are opening that you know ahead of everywhere else, that they'll be they'll be sort of prime for for testing stuff. You know, um, I mean, I guess you you guys uh, are any of your clubs open? Yeah, we've just uh, here in Rhode Island. We're actually so we've opened as of June first for private lessons only. And there's all these like protocols and cleaning sure. uh, measures in place in between people coming in and out. Doors are locked, so there's no integrated loans kind of speaking with each other or catching up. And June 29th, which is a week on Monday, we're opening up. We've got 12 courts here, so we're going to open nice. every other court and just for solo hits or for people in the same household to hit right. together. So, you know, like a father, yeah. son or, you know, a sister, brother type thing. And in the middle of July, then that would go just to two people per court and just, yeah, see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, it's great. And any, any kind of movement like that gives, gives hope to sort of everyone else then. And I'm sure, you know, there's, we did a lot of work with, with world squash on, on lots of different protocols and, you know, signs that you can stick up in clubs and whatnot. And and everybody is looking at that because everyone wants to, everyone wants to get back on court as soon as they can, don't they? So yeah, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. It, I, I mean, I, the word unprecedented has been used a lot, but it, it's such an unprecedented situation where nearly the whole planet is finding themselves in exactly the same situation as well. You know, it's, it's yeah, very that's, peculiar, very it peculiar is, feeling. 
that's kind of one of the it's not like you're on your own i think that's one thing that's it's mm. not great obviously but you sort of feel that you're kind of you're in that battle with everyone else is kind of fighting the same thing and not just as a coach or as a player or chief exec but everyone in every business coffee shops and restaurants bars and what have you and so we're all, that's one thing and just seeing everyone pull together it's, it's kind of cool yeah very true yeah 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 very true uh, even at the even doing the simplest weekly tasks as an individual not thinking about business not thinking about anything just you have to everything's different right you different protocols to go pick up a, a sandwich or a coffee <laughs> different you know stores are open different minimal hours so limited people and then and then everything you do beyond that is just even more layers of complication it's 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 wild yeah look forward to that day go to really a bar. look forward to that day just go to a bar give your mate a hug and have a pint happy days uh, did you did, did you did you guys see the video from new zealand at midnight when they lifted the ban the social distancing oh, ban there no, no. is a group of young a group of young people in a bar and the clock struck midnight and they were watching the tv like almost like it was a sports <laughs> game and and the the it was like new year's countdown and the social ban got lifted and everyone just started hugging each other in the middle of the bar it was awesome <laughs> yeah it does feel very surreal it, it almost feels like that will never happen again but i'm sure it will at some point <laughs> yeah yeah eventually so one of the things you touched upon earlier was uh, the financial challenges, not just for the staff, but also for the players. And I know you guys set up the We Are One Fund, um, and I think you had a goal of $75,000. Now I checked just yesterday, and you were over 60000 with 25000 directly from the PSA. So do you want to tell us a little bit about where that initiative came for, from and what motivated it? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I mean, everything we do, is is aimed at is aimed at you know we're a players association and, and the players are obviously at the heart of everything and we we had it was a, there was a little bit of um, I'll be completely candid here there was a little bit of soul searching right at the start because you know especially I don't know if it was the same everywhere else but everything was about you know the NHS here in the UK you know and there was there was all this fundraising and you know there were a lot of there were a lot of different things there that were all obviously you know aimed at you know, raising money for, you know, medical services. And, and so we felt a little bit almost torn initially of when was the right time to actually then start, you know, a fund towards the players, um, you know, and how that would be perceived. But the foundation, so Adriana and Jordan um, and the trustees are all hugely supportive, sort of took up the reins with the, with the we are, you know, and the We Are One fund. And they were in close contact with a few of the, the top players as well, um, who've been great and really supportive. And they, they, were, they were very keen to get this, you know, done and over the line and I, and I think it's been executed the foundation have done a great job of sort of executing that well you know they've, they've done they're doing a lot of work around the mental health side of things they're doing a lot of work around just general support you know what players can do you know Monday motivation sort of emails zoom calls with with various people sort of each week trying to keep everyone engaged and you know spirits up and whatnot so it, it's yeah it's it's gone yeah it's We've still got a little way to go, but I think there's still a few avenues to to, to raise some more funds um, in in the coming kind of weeks. And we've had applications in there, so we've set all that up in the sort of back end database, so players, you know, they know exactly the, you know, what, you know, who can apply and who can't apply. Um, and I think the first round of about 30 players have have, have had funds paid out already. Um, so yeah, no, it's good to good to see it working in action. Um, and I think there will be 
we'll have another push on trying to raise some more funds. So yeah, it's hopefully hopefully the players will have seen it as a you know a very positive sort of piece of support. Um, you know, it feels like it still doesn't feel like <laughs> you can never do enough, right? Um, with the amount of you know we've got over a thousand members on the on, on the tour now or on the, or on the rankings. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of players to think about. Um, but hopefully this will have been a good sort of message back to them that, that you know we are we are trying our best to to support them um, you know and, and getting getting the tour back is obviously you know right at the sort of top of that list um, which we're fighting tooth and nail tooth and nail, tooth and nail for. Have, have you heard from many countries about um, support supporting their individual players? Like I know uh, my brother Nick's on the tour and and Canada actually. Um, I'm sure they did it in a bunch of sports, but gave a lot of the the squash players a little bit of emergency funding. I think they called it, which was which was nice of them. Is there is there other kind of federations doing doing similar? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, from from what we understand, there are. So we did. So the tour team did. So Hannah and and, and the tour the tour team did a great job right at the start of doing a lot of um a lot of fact finding so so within the database again so within the secure site where we have everything for the sort of players you know they they were they were going after you know finding all the leads on what you could claim you know if you're obviously a self-employed squash player you know what can you get in the uk what can you get in the us what can you get in you know various places and then reached out to all the federations to sort of find out what they were or weren't doing so i think there was there was a very you know, the same with any of it, really. You know, there there are there are countries that support their players really well, um, and there are others that are just not in a position to necessarily do that. Um, so I think, similarly with some of the federations, you know, we've we've spoken to we've spoken to World Squash a lot during this period. Um, you know, and there are some federations that, you know, get heavily sort of government funded, and and they're kind of you know ticking along okay, and 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 things will be fine. And there are other federations that really are going to, you know, you know, they're really feeling this quite badly um so it's it's just the case of everyone kind of sort of <laughs> trying to sort of keep afloat and keep alive really through this through this period of time but yeah I, I mean from from the from the number that we've had in through the through the we are one fund it does feel like most of the players you know we've obviously had you know a reasonable amount of, of players kind of apply for it but i actually thought we would have more so so you know you'd sort of like to think that the players are kind of hanging on and you know through their support networks are you know, we're doing okay, and we'll, you know, I think we'll we'll certainly see when the tour starts whether you know players kind of drop off, you know, and actually have just you know can't afford to do it anymore, or just have had to do something else. So I think that's when we'll really we'll probably find out kind of January, February, really. How Squash players kind have of a doing. Squash players have a habit of being terrible admins, so it just it might just be that. <laughs> that, is, that is also very true. That is very true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I think we've, I think we've pushed it out there enough times and in enough different ways that you know, you'd hope every, you know, all the players do know that it's there. But um, you never know. Yeah, one week, one week after you say that it's over, you're gonna get about, you know, 25 responses. Oh, I've been meaning to do <laughs> yeah, it for a few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you I've mean? Really one is out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been really busy watching Netflix for <laughs> 16 weeks. <laughs> Tiger King. <laughs> that concludes part one of the Alex Goff interview. Amazing to hear or even to think about the potential of the British Open going ahead in August. Happy dish. Make sure to tune in next week to hear part two of the interview where Alex goes into his playing career and 
talk through some of his highlights and all that good stuff. Okay, uh, back to you, Chris. Yeah, so thanks, Chris, for for joining. I mean, just to just to give the listeners a little background of of our our relationship, uh, we would have met in 2010, 2011-ish, when Chris was uh, looking at being recruited from St. Lawrence, and then and then um, successfully being recruited to St. Lawrence and coming and. I got to coach him for one year uh, before I moved over to Brown and have, have uh, kept in touch ever since. And, um, and then, so now uh, I spent four years at Dickinson as the first head coach building the men's and women's varsity programs there and who better to take the lead and uh, keep, keep the team going strong than Chris and, He's doing an awesome job and I know the players love him and, uh, you know, just thanks for coming on and, you know, really, really excited to, to talk today. I think topic that we, we felt very strongly about that we needed, we just wanted to use our platform to, to talk a little bit about our support for the Black Lives Matter movement, our acknowledgement that, that squash has a long way to go and, and, you know, Chris and Jamal, we just kind of really love to hear where, you know, what squash has, has given to you and your journey, but also, you know, some of the challenges and, you know, give, give us a little bit of insight of, on what we can do as, as coaches, leaders in the squash world to hopefully break down some of these barriers and, and uh, give more opportunity for a lot of people in the squash world. So with that said, maybe Chris, take us out and you know, give us a little bit of an intro, how you got introduced to squash. And then, and then Jamal, we'd love to hear you, you know, both New York guys, but coming, coming into the squash world a little bit differently. Yeah. So again, thanks again, guys, for having me. This is, this is a great um, opportunity for me to share a little bit of my story, but um, so I've been following the podcast for the last couple of weeks and it's just really cool what you guys are doing, you know. Um, no, I do worry not. <laughs> uh, our, our, our game is so diverse right and and it's so cool but when you think about it you know there are a lot of barriers and there are a lot of um also opportunities there but um so yeah so how i got into uh into squash um i was fortunate enough to to have tim wyatt walk into my classroom in sixth grade um and introduce the game of squash and this program called city squash um quite frankly at the time i was uh I was three years um, removed from the Dominican Republic. My English wasn't great. Um, therefore, I wasn't the best student. I didn't really enjoy school much. So when he came into my classroom as a white male from Harvard, um, you know, I, I didn't pay much attention in the back of the classroom. Um, he was talking about tryouts. And uh, luckily for me, um, one of my best friends, Arhelis, he, uh, he knocked on my door on Saturday morning of tryouts. I didn't tell my parents about the tryouts. Um, because I had a basketball game in the afternoon. So um, he knocks on my door on a Saturday morning. Um, my mom is like, Arhelis, what are you doing here? Um, he's like, well, I'm here to talk to you about city squash and this trial that I'm going to at Fordham University. Um, they'll help us get into college and private schools. And the w- the minute he mentioned that all of it was free, um, my mom woke me up and there I was. <laughs> I was uh, getting dressed and ready to go to tryouts. Um, not because I wanted to, but because I had to. So <laughs> So that that moment, I'm forever grateful because um, as we walked down Fordham Road, you know, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, and I grew up an athlete. I grew up playing baseball my whole life. So for me to try this new sport and a sport that I had never heard about um, from the very first day, I fell in love with it. I think my baseball experience and hang, 
hand-eye coordination helped um, with striking the ball on my first couple of attempts. And not too many guys in the room that were with me trying out um, were able to do that, you know. So right away, I knew that I was kind of like, okay, this is this could be something, you know. And I fell in love with it. I think the people um, that were uh, leading the program at the time um, were very passionate. And, and the people that are still running the programs are very passionate, um, obviously. But uh, Tim, Tim really went out of his way um to care for my parents and myself and 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 kind of highlight why this would be a great opportunity for me and, and i'm forever grateful for that because my life you know i i wouldn't be a head squash coach right now if it wasn't for that moment right um and and obviously everything else that i've gone through from that moment on has been life-changing and um i wouldn't trade it for anything so that's kind of my introduction to the game amazing and jamal you grew up in new york as well when did you yeah. get introduced to the game so it's funny, we actually have um, a, a similar a similar arc. I had no idea what squash was until uh, until I was 12, either, either 11 or 12. I went to a school called Poly Prep in Brooklyn from 6th through 12th grade. And uh, Poly is the only school that has, I think still has squash courts in the NYC or, the, or in the Tri-State area, sorry, NYC area. So um, Poly is a massive campus, and I remember getting lost my second day of school, I think looking for the bathroom. And... Um, I heard what it turns out to be, it was just uh, the coach hitting forehand drives, but I heard this sound and literally my feet just led the way. Something about it was, was interesting. And then I saw, and I saw this, this, the, the coach hitting forehand drives. Once again, I had no idea what this game was, but something about it grabbed me. And I was like, yeah, sign me up for this. And <laughs> thankfully, Apolli, um, for, for, for PE, you do rotations. So in the winter, you know, you get to trial, uh, I think it was squash, wrestling, and basketball. And... For those of you listening to the podcast, I'm 150 pounds soaking wet after dinner. Um, I'm not wrestling anyone, like anytime soon. Basketball, I mean, I guess I, <laughs> I guess I had some natural talents in basketball, but I didn't crack five feet until late sophomore year, so that was also no go. I could I could steal the ball, no no problem, but not getting blocked was kind of an issue. So yeah, squash just kind of naturally fell into. Uh, I fell in love with it from the first first day and just couldn't get enough. I was, kind of make up for lost time. Like Chris, I was a baseball player. Like initially, baseball was my first passion, my first love. And and as, as Chris said, I think the, the natural hand-eye that comes from hitting, from fielding, I think the natural motion. I played second base shortstop pitcher and there were times when I came down and, and threw, you know, kind of three quarters or a little, little sidearm action. Definitely transferred over to um, to squash. But, but yeah, once again, I didn't, for me, it wasn't through an urban squash program. It was just kind of naturally through poly. And yes, that I fell in love with it, and to this day, I still can't get enough of it. It's it's a good problem. It's a good addiction, I guess. Chris, you you went on to to prep school, and Jamal, you you stayed at Poly. Like, what was uh, you know, what was going to tournaments like? What was playing for you know high school squash like? And you know, did did you guys feel like you had a tougher time fitting in in the squash world? And you know, in U.S. squash tournaments, what was that experience like? Yeah, I I would never forget my uh, my first squash tournament um, because that was a really big eye opening moment for me. I was again, I was a sixth grader who, um, I my English was not great at the time. Like it was it was not great, and um, from that experience, like I I hadn't traveled much. I hadn't seen a lot of outside of the Bronx, you know. So for me to we went to Bronxville. That was my first tournament. It was in Bronxville. It's not like I went too far. But I, I got to see a whole different side for the very first time that I, I had never saw, you know, and 
at that time, I didn't have any white friends. You know, I didn't, you know, um, growing up in the Bronx, everyone looks like me or, or they're African-American, you know? And so that, that for me was, was interesting. You know, um, there was a whole nother side, um, of New York that I hadn't even considered. And, uh, just seeing the houses driving up there and then getting into the squash, uh, the squash club, we were at the time we were training in international courts um, at Fordham. So just imagine going from an international court to a regular court. And you're like, wow, like this is what it's supposed to feel like, you know, and you're hitting your cross courts and they're down the middle and, and all this stuff. But uh, the whole experience, that very first tournament, I, I knew that that squash um, was connected to to social wealth and economics and there was a whole other side that I had never even thought about at that, at that time in my life, you know, and as years went on, you know, and then I got, uh, I was lucky enough to go to boarding school. Um, then that became my life. You know, I, I was in that world now and, and learning to navigate um, and coast switch between going from the Bronx on vacations and coming up to Connecticut. Um, that was, that was tough, you know, at first, because a lot of the friends that I left back in the Bronx from the very first time I came back, um, one of the comments, and, and this is, I'm not joking. This is one of the comments that one of my friends said to me. Uh, I was like, oh, like, you're, you're like talking white now. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I've just been to school for three months and I'm getting a proper education now. And I guess I'm losing my New York accent. And that's what you mean by I'm talking white. So, so for me, I was never, I was never too black or too white. Right? I was always in the middle and, and having to navigate that to friends that had no idea what squash was or even seen that side of America yet, um, it was tough. It, it, it was tough, um, for sure. I was lucky enough to have two other city squashers at Canterbury at the time. Um, Jose Alvarez and Freddie Hernandez were really good friends of mine. But um, if it wasn't for them, like, I don't know if I would have lasted boarding school. I My freshman year, I wanted to leave, you know, and just because it was a whole different uh, world that I, it took a while to get used to, you know. Um, I mean, the, the other minority kids that were at, at Canterbury either played basketball or football. Um, and right away, when you're walking around campus, everyone's asking me, like, oh, you're a basketball player. Oh, you're a football player. I'm actually a squash player, guys. And when you say that, it's like, what? You know, and, and that that was really cool for me. But um, but again, going back and forth every time was definitely a challenge. Yeah, I remember um, I had a very similar experience. My first tournament, once I remember, remember it very vividly. I remember going to, I think it's the Greenwich Field Club. And um, I mean, once can just automatically, it wasn't, I mean, race was obviously a thing. As, as Chris said, on the way to the tournament, seeing, you know, that affluence, just all of Greenwich really is affluent, I guess, but seeing the, the massive mansions and this kid come from Canarsie, like that just didn't exist. And I mean, I went to Poly, so, you know, it's like somewhat indoctrinated to, to, to wealth, but more in like a, in, in like in the, in the city, Manhattan, but, you know, seeing these sprawling mansions and, and, uh, and country clubs, I had never stepped foot in a country club or, or near a country club. I'd seen it from afar from what you see in movies. Yeah, it was it was eye opening. Um I mean I was the kid who was let's get like when I got into squash, my parents knew absolutely nothing about it. So we also just didn't have money for the proper equipment. I remember my first racket uh was a hand me down print hundred and ninety gram club, which I'm sticking to this. It's it explains my backhand technique to this day. But um <laughs> it was <laughs> Arthur's laughing because he's he's seen it. It, it it's not pretty. But I you mean, keep telling yourself that, Jamal. Yeah, I actually don't think it's that bad. It's, <laughs> I really it's just, don't. It's just not that the good. The racket or his backhand? <laughs> oh, no, the, the racket, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but it was this, you know, like $35 hand-me-down racket. 
Um, I, you know, back then squash shoes were kind of like nowadays, you know, the retail for $70 or $80. So I had these, these, uh, these indoor soccer, soccer, soccer shoes got on closed up from Models for like 20 bucks. So, you know, I'm pulling up to tournaments, the in the very first tournament wearing baggy, um, basketball shorts. It's like oversized. I mean, maybe the shirt wasn't oversized. I think I was just undersized, but <laughs> you know, look like a basketball player with these indoor soccer sneakers with these kids who have on, you know, they're all whites or they're, they're, they're fitted out and they're like, you know, they're branded gear. So right off the bat, I was like, oh, this is different. And there's definitely like a hierarchy of, you know, like kids who look like squash players and, and those that didn't. Um, they're definitely some of the, 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 the glances, like the double takes, which honestly, I didn't really take too much umbrage. Um, just factually speaking, I mean, back then, especially, you know, there were, I don't know, maybe there's like maybe one or two people of color playing in tournaments. So I, I definitely understood the, oh, you don't look like a, you know, Thomas Jones the fourth. That's probably the the waspy name I could have thought of. But but yeah, so I definitely got that. Um, I definitely got my fair share of, oh, like, do you know Brian Patterson? And at the time, I I actually didn't know BP at all. So, or I got heard of him. It's like, yeah, I've heard of him. Like, oh, tell him I say hey. I was like, I don't know how to do that. They're like, well, he's he's a coach, right? And I was like, uh, no. And they like just look of confusion on people's faces. Like, so what? I had one parent ask, "So what are you?" That was that was fun. Like, I'm a squash player, just like your son. Yeah. Good good times. But um, but yeah, I mean, throughout, um, as I said, there. Even though I went to Poly, Poly is for, for better or worse, like the blue collar of like you know the Ivy League schools in in New York City. So even you know going to schools like Brunswick, for instance, like that was. A massive difference for me and just seeing like, the culture that was there it, it is very ingrained in like country club culture so as i said it was eye-opening i still haven't really gotten past it i i definitely would not consider myself a country club kind of dude not not, not rocking the all whites um voluntarily so yes it was it was different eye-opening different but not a hindrance i mean i think for, for chris and i i think just the hour that love for the game kind of you know powered us through any sort of awkward uh, situations that that arose. Yeah, I was uh, just to allude to that just real quick. Um, I was actually talking to a few of my friends about this who are older. The the first class of city squashers. Um, and at the time, you know, when when you were sixth grader or seventh grader, and we're we were dressed in baggy clothes, and and you know, one of our guys had a do rag on on court. You know, like that. You know, to the other kids was like. <laughs> who are these kids? You know, like, what are they doing? You know? And uh, so that was always uh, an interesting conversation to have. And, and just from looking at the way that the other kids were dressed, you know, with their nice clothes that fit them. And we had our oversized city squash uh, t-shirts and, um, but, but I remember very vividly when I wanted to be good at squash. And it was because of something very similar to that. I was in, and I won't share any names, but I was in a locker room at a Greenwich gold. I was fortunate enough to have gotten really good rather quickly playing with older players. Um, and again, I, I was, I've always been a competitor. So that drove me a little bit, but that specific tournament, I remember I got crushed in the first round, you know, and I'm sitting in the locker room, just bumped, you know, it's, it's not a good feeling. You know, you at the time I remember the score wasn't, uh, you had to serve a rally to get, you know, I'm, and you can lose like nine, one, nine, one, nine, one, or nine, zero, nine, zero, nine, zero. And, and that, that's just like, that was heartbreaking, you know? So I'm sitting in this locker room 
and a lot of the top U.S. players that were at the tournament um, they didn't see me in the locker room. I was a little bit to the side. And just overhearing um, some of the dialogue that was kind of being said about my squash game and, and kind of um, – it was an embarrassment at the time. Like it really was an embarrassment, you know, and, and I took that with me, you know, it was like, I have zero respect here, you know, and, and that, that, that really got to me. I, I realized that I had zero respect in the squash world as a young man. And, and I, and I figured that not a lot of squash players look like us, you know, and from an urban squash point, um, I wanted to be the best in my program first, right? That was my first goal. And then once I, I got to that in the sixth grade, uh, in the seventh grade in my grade, I wanted to be good on the U.S. squash circuit, the junior circuit. It was because of that moment. These guys were literally bashing, like destroying my name without even knowing my name uh, in my squash game. And I remember from that very from that very moment, I was like, I need to be just as good as these guys if I'm ever going to earn respect. The way you get respect is you beat them, right? You beat them. And, and they, they can say all they want, but if you beat them, they have to give you some respect, you know? And and that's kind of what drove a lot of that at a young age, you know, and I remember talking to some of my my teammates on the way back from tournaments and and just getting ready for the Monday practice right away because I was so driven by that embarrassment that that it really got to me, you know, and that's kind of where it all started, to be honest. So, like, you know, we we talked a little bit offline about this, Chris, but, it, it, you know, there's I think no matter who you are. You know, you get beat and then you hear someone talking smack and you're like, okay, like this guy's, this guy's mine, right? Like I'm going to get this guy. But then we also talked about some of the challenges, you know, coming from an urban squash program and not everyone is going to be as maybe fired up from that. And they might actually go the other way. So in a sport where we want to be, we want to be growing, we want to be inclusive, you know, that's, I think what a lot of people are say about squash, but some of these experiences, and you talked about it in in boarding school a little bit too, when some urban squash players go there, like these experiences drive people away, which is the exact opposite of what we're trying to build. So, you know, I think around that, you know, did anything change for you guys going to college. I mean, Chris going to St. Lawrence, Jamal going to Rochester, kind of both upstate New York. Did anything change? Did you find a change there? Um, I would say, obviously, I our team was very diverse and we had players from all over the world, um, which was really cool because now my, my boarding school experience was great because I had urban squashers with me. And then the rest of the team was guys that were just learning to play squash. So for me to step onto a campus like St. Lawrence and have 14 other guys that now have dealt with squash in their own countries um, and in the upbringing and, and share a lot of those experiences and kind of what we had in common and some of the things that we've gone through, you know, and, and that kind of it helped a little bit, you know, because you find these people that have something in common with you. But similar to what you were saying, um, as far as those situations driving some kids away and um that that does happen you know I saw it happen at when I was a student at City Squash I saw it happen when I was a staff you know and and then you always wonder what what is it about that experience right it's not necessarily the experience itself it's more about the dialogue or the lack of dialogue at that time um that doesn't happen you know a lot of the and 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 I mean I might have been guilty of this as a staff you know you 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 worry and you question like why why wouldn't this kid want this for themselves right and it's not that they don't want that opportunity for themselves. 
It's just that they're dealing with things in that environment that they're not sharing with anyone else. And no one else is asking them about those. They're not venting about those things. They're not having those dialogues and they're not um, coming out about those things. And, and when you hold those things inside, then the only option is just to leave, right? That's easier than to have to face that. Um, and, and the word easy is probably not the word, not the best word to use for that. It's, I, I get it, you know, I, I get it when it, when it comes from to, to that extent. But, um, but I do think that my experience at St. Lawrence definitely helped me have a broader perspective of squash. Um, you know, having teammates from Egypt and Canada and just listening about how different uh, just Canada squash is to U.S. squash, you know, just from a cost standpoint, how easy it is to sign up for tournaments, how affordable it is um, to travel and, and play all these tournaments and stuff. And, and that's not something that's quite the same here, you know, so you get all these different experiences and then you kind of start thinking about yours and, and start putting things into perspective of your own experience. Yeah. For, for me, college, similar to, to, to Chris, college squash was, I guess the first real eye opener for me, or just it, it kind of broke the status quo. So I'm a little older than Chris. I, I started at uh, U Rochester in, uh, in 06. And I mean, squash for the most part, I know Trinity kind of set the bar when it came to recruiting international players, but for the most part, um, college squash was just an extension of, of the junior rankings. Like, you know, there was a smattering of international players, but it wasn't nearly as prevalent as, uh, as it was in 2011, 2012, and definitely not what it is nowadays. But um, I mean, I was lucky at Rochester. Uh, my freshman year was kind of like the first big push for the university to, to compete with the Ivies. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, the, our coach got free reign, but basically he was, they, they were pretty laissez-faire. They, they, they let him do his thing. And my freshman year, um, we only had three recruits, uh, but there's an English guy, a uh, Japanese guy, and, and myself. And I mean, just literally those three, just having those three, it, it broke the mold of, of what my teammates were prior to that. I mean, going to Poly, I, I mean, once again, even though Poly was more diverse, I guess, than other schools, other other squash settings, it still optically looked the same. Whereas, I mean, visually, once again, we passed the test at Rochester. And just, as Chris said, I think is a, a, a big part of it for me was the international flair, getting, as a squash nerd, just literally hearing different perspectives on how to play the game. I think back then, um, there was like kind of one tried and true method of, of coaching or methodology uh, with coaching squash in the States. And, and hearing and seeing completely different styles, uh, hearing you know, different training regimes, like how hard or, or how lax people were when it came to training, just little things like that was, was amazing. It's an experience that I will never forget. And I think it was amazing. Yeah, as, as, as Chris said, it's, um, it's, it's difficult to, it's, it's hard for me to, to say like, you know, it, that's the, the, the best that could have been done. I think we can always grow, we can always evolve, we can always change. I think we're going in the right direction with the CSA at least, but personally, I would like to see that that reflected not just in the CSA, but amongst junior squash um, in America. Obviously, we're, only, we're, all, we're both talking from a U.S. squash perspective. I would like to see similar initiatives taken um, with U.S. squash to make it not necessarily more international, but just to have a greater outreach amongst lines, obviously race, but also socioeconomic status, I think is a huge thing. And SEA programs are a great start, but personally, I would like to see more. I mean, because realistically, when you think about it, right, like I, I'll put into perspective, if it wasn't for city squash, I would never be playing squash. Yep. You know, if it wasn't for programs like that and, and the, the, the soul, I mean, yeah, maybe because I didn't know about the sport, but what, let's say I, I came across Google and found out what squash was. 
there was no way I was going to afford to be a U.S. squash junior on my own. That was not going to happen. I mean, hell, it's like literally finding places to play. I mean, as I said, things are getting – they are getting better. I think we are slowly but surely getting outside of that country club mentality. I feel like a lot of people, both in the States and outside the States – or actually in the States, they, they think of squash as a very elitist um, waspy. It's the, the kind of game that, you know, hedge fund managers play, you know, on their lunch hour, perpetuated kind of by the media, that, that image. But I think we're slowly getting out of that. But as I said, I, I personally, I would like to see more. I mean, obviously, we, as Chris, Chris came, Chris is a, Chris came from an SCA program. Um, I've worked with SCA programs in the past. You know, I think that's a great start, but, I, 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 it can't, for me at least, it can't just be that. I think there needs to be more um, done as said on U.S. Squash's part as the governing body in, in the U.S. to not just, I guess, side with SCA every once in a while, but to have their own initiative, but just spitballing here. You say that it's perpetuated by the media, but the reality is it's, it's not the media really that's perpetuating it. It's just that's the way it is. And you're right, it's, it's definitely changing. I'm interested, Chris, for, from your perspective, you talked about going up to boarding school and obviously having a couple of buddies with you from City Squash. Did you ever at any point feel like you were part of that community up there, like that you were accepted by the other kids in the school? And then the same question, I guess, in relation to the junior squash circuit, was there ever a point where you felt that like you were just part of that community and you felt fully embedded in it? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I would say about two months into my high school experience at Canterbury um, after I complained to my parents and Tim about wanting to just leave and, and knowing Freddie left and right every other day, a really good friend of mine, Michael Scoder, he was, he's who I would call my first official, like white friend. Like um, he was someone that he was a big Tupac lover. Um, and we had so much in common, you know, and this guy, um, it was just, he was a year older than me and he was on the football team and we just started building this great relationship. And, and Freddie's, he was in one of, he was in Freddie's friend group and Jose as well. And I, I slowly started becoming a part of that friend group. Right. And, and then I eventually met my girlfriend at the time and, you know, all those things kind of played, played a role in kind of making me feel at home there. And, and yeah, I would say that after the first year, I, I looked forward to going back, you know, and, and I looked forward to, to make an, a, an impact on campus because after my first year, you know, my squash success and the team success kind of caught on and we were challenging the success of the hockey team. And that was a big thing. You know, the hockey was, was huge in New England and, and um, hockey was the number one sport at Canterbury on until the big old bad boys from the SEA came about and, and we kind of changed that script a little bit. And, uh, it was just a cool Hell feeling, yeah. you know, um, to be a part of that <laughs> and, and kind of change the the narrative of squash at Canterbury. Um, and that was really cool um, to be a part of that for sure. And then same thing with the U.S. squash circuit. I think when I, when I cracked the top 20, um, I fell apart of the community, but that's because I forced my way in there in a way. But, uh, and, and again, Tim, Tim does such a great job of putting us in tough situations um, and, and just exposing us to the world you know and and just kind of having these conversations on car ride backs you know about the other side of america you know and um and things like that so so yeah i would say that after a certain time i felt like i was a part of that community you know and, and again it all came about because of my love for the game first and then 
than my opening my openness to to other cultures and other people and embracing that difference but i i had to embrace that difference you know and it took a while for me to embrace that as a kid from uh from the bronx um it, it took a while but but it did it eventually did and also sounds like there's maybe a few more barriers for you to overcome to be accepted within that like you're saying it didn't just come you had to basically stick at it and prove that you were worthy of being at those level of tournaments and starting to beat guys that maybe beaten you in the past and just showing that you were as committed as everyone else that was there i think yeah a lot of that credit goes to to the opportunities that that tim put forth and like the extra opportunities that were there um because i think he he got a sense that i this is something that i really was serious about you know and i cared about it and uh and yeah so it worked out in a way what about you jamal because obviously in some ways you maybe had it a little bit differently but i would imagine you where it would be different would be that you weren't traveling to tournaments as part of a group i would imagine uh, yeah so as i said earlier you know it was assumed that i was part of of an sca program but i mean yeah i mean i my parents did i i, I literally couldn't afford to go to basically anything that was outside of the tri-state area so it was a sacrifice my parents to get up at you know, crack a dawn on a Saturday morning to go for like an hour to Greenwich, for instance. But anything outside of like an hour and a half ride was out of the question. Like staying in hotels, like there was, <laughs> there were no money for hotels. That, that, that didn't exist. But yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I definitely felt both, you know, even as it, as part of a team or even like when people thought that I was part of an SA program, there's definitely in the beginning before I was good, I was in like this ragtag kid playing in sambas. It's like, oh, you know, he's fast cool but he doesn't really belong and as chris said it definitely fueled it gets subconsciously fueled that passion i i wanted to like basically like, they're going to accept me like there's no ifs ands buts about it i love this game too much to 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 not basically to give up on this because of of cultural differences uh socioeconomic differences like they're going to accept me one way or another and it's like that subconsciously fueled uh my passion to get better now unlike chris i was never a top 20 player didn't didn't quite get there ever but oh yeah big man oh that's not important and i wouldn't be playing down any of your achievements it's super inspiring listening to you guys talk about all the challenges that you faced to to feel that you had earned your opponents and peers respect and all that good stuff it's really inspiring and just how your love for the game was never going to be taken away by anybody else it's amazing i mean it might seem sound a bit evangelical but i think that's I'll speak for myself. That's one of the main reasons why I got into coaching. Um, it's it's kind of it's evangelically passing on that that love, that passion for the game, onto others in whatever capacity that might be. Because for me, at the end of the day, squash is squash is the game. It can be vehicles other things, which is great. But at the end of the day, at its core, it's a game that needs to be that should be enjoyed. Um, and I said, like when I I literally fell in love at first sound. I didn't even see it. Had no idea what it was. Fell in love at first sound. And that's kept me good. That, that fire has been burning like very brightly ever since 98, 99. God. Long time ago. Yeah. France were world champions many, in, many, in football. Yeah, Zidane wasn't Zidane wasn't quite reviled yet, right? No. Jumo, I don't know, I don't know if 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 you uh, if you got a lot of this as well. But for me, when when I when I started to feel uh more welcome with like the US top players and all this stuff was when people stopped referring to me as an athlete, they yep. referred to me as a squash player. Yep. That was huge for me because 
that 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 statement, yeah, it's you're an athlete, that, but you're not a squash player. Like, you know, that is so condescending, you know, in a way. Um, and it drives me nuts. It it literally used to drive me nuts. Um, because I, I knew I was an athlete. I wanted to be a squash player, you know. Um, so when I when I started getting recognized as a squash player, I was like, all right, this this is this is all worth it now, you know. Okay, so I've been dreaming of my whole life of being referred to. <laughs> <laughs> Those vapor flies, Stu. One vapor fly at a time. Yeah. <laughs> the you Endurance <laughs> running ability doesn't convert to squash playing ability. Yeah. Man, you, look, you look like a runner. <laughs> <laughs> a mighty yeah, fine runner at that time. <laughs> great runner. Yeah. I'm hanging around the squash club and they're like, there's a good trail around there if you want to go. <laughs> I got, I got, oh, you'd look good in a pair of spandex <laughs> on your bike. Cheers. Thank you. You, you no, should stop hanging around in spandex then. It's worse clubs. <laughs> I think that's the biggest issue, Arthur. No more spandex for you. But, but oh. yeah, it was, it was, I mean, for me, it was, once again, I didn't, I didn't uh, quite achieve what Chris achieved in his junior career or even collegiate career. But yeah, I had the same exact thing, you know, like for me, it was, as a baseball, I played a lot of sports growing up and uh, especially the first couple of years playing in squash tournaments, heard it countless times. And I know once again, the, the intention, they, they meant well, like they didn't, I don't think they were, in, were, were trying to say it in a disparaging way, but yeah, I heard all the time, your son, like he's, he's one, he's like the greatest athlete I've ever seen. And this is after I got, you know, chopped, you know, nine, first game would always be close. Nine, seven. I think I played every other shot as a trickle boost, but Nine seven, and then they would wisen up, and then it'd be eleven one or something like that. But you know, hear that all the time. Hey, your son's a great athlete, which, is, as as Chris said, like deep down, it's it's like cool things. But I mean, a I I played a bunch of sports growing up. Like I want to be a squash player. I fell in love with this. I want to I want to get this down. I want to be seen as a squash player, not as an athlete who carries a squash racket or a hundred ninety gram club on court. And, you just um, got playing so many trickle boats that that was what you were going I for. still haven't learned that lesson. That's the problem. <laughs> what about your mizukis? <laughs> oh, that came later, unfortunately. So I think I went instead. Of, I went. I went down the slightly opposite route of Chris. And in a weird way, I guess I subconsciously accepted the fact that you know I didn't have I didn't have a, a formal coach. I never took a lesson. Never had a formal coach coach growing up. So you know I didn't. While I did respect and. You know, it's like some pros playing and I love their technique. I, I knew that at the time I, I couldn't replicate that. I didn't have once in the formal training. I didn't have the time. I would basically make up for lost time. So it was just do the best with what I got. And, you know, I came to kind of accept the Mizukis and the, the, the no look flicks and things like that as part of my game. It's just. It's fun. It's creative. Yeah. I, I have to share one anecdote, actually. So Jamal and I were in Amsterdam. Uh, summer of 2018 and 2019 so we're walking down the tournament hotel it was the dutch junior open and you know there's hundreds of juniors from all over the world and there's a couple of kids wearing ukrainian tracksuits ukrainian squash tracksuits and they're probably about 50 feet away from us and we're walking towards them or they're walking towards us and they're like patting each other back hey hey it's him it's him and so as they get close mizuki <laughs> no mess it was unbelievable his, his squash skills video so yeah. yeah yeah i, I genuinely i genuinely thought i was like irish number one you know this dude right here go talk to him they're like yeah, yeah. can you take a picture of uh 
That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great cameraman. Legendary, yeah, legendary meme with the black sunglasses. <laughs> oh, was, yeah. There you go. And talking about kind of like all the, the junior success and stuff, I think a lot of that, man, was I, I would honestly credit a lot of that to the size of where the program was at the time. You know, I think now – and one of the biggest challenges for me when I was at City Squash as a coach, and I mean, I love Brian Patterson. He's like obviously one of my, one of my good good buddies and and role models. Um, that's a scary phrase to throw at BP, a role model. But <laughs> uh, but um, I mean, for us when we were in the program, we we could have small sessions with our coach. You know, we could have we could have two players on the court with Tim Wine or Brian Mathias anytime. You know, and now. Um, and even when I was working at City Squash, we don't have the court space and the the capacity. Like we have a lot more kids now, you know. So to get that individual attention, um, it's hard. And, and that's one of the biggest challenges for SCA programs is to keep up with the level of U.S. Squash, right? That opportunity needs to be there because, as all you guys know, right? Good squash players come from a lot of soloing and one-on-one attention, you know, or self-motivation you know but that one-on-one attention is huge it's, it's very critical and if you see a lot of the top players in the u.s junior circuit those are the kids that are getting a lot of lessons a week and they're paying top pros to give them lessons you know and that's the difference you know if sca ever wants to get over that hump you know and that's something that needs to be thought about you know and and it's hard and i don't know the answer to it i obviously i couldn't figure it out at city squash but we did put things in place like Saturday individual sessions for the more serious players, but I mean, it's hard. You know, it's a it's a big challenge. I don't know if you've seen the Squash Skills documentary on the City Squash program, but that's one of the things that Brian Patterson actually talks about is the challenges the program's growing of having enough courts for the kids to give them one on ones, and yes, yeah, something they're obviously aware of, but it's a tough issue to address. And so, just to kind of bring this back, I mean, I think one of the things I took from from you guys sharing there was just like and and I think this is one of the one of the small positives that kind of people are are learning is that even just those little kind of side hand side mouth comments of you know oh yeah he's good athlete you know good athlete there and just like kind of disrespecting micro like I think people are learning that you know those words have meaning to a lot of people and can push people away from whatever they're doing. We're kind of talking about this in reference to squash, but um, obviously the world's talking about this in in relation to a lot bigger things too. But so I think I think that's something I took from this, and I think I'm going to be super conscious of moving forward and calling people out, being better leader in that a- arena. But you know, any other actions that we can think of for change and like you said there's there's barriers for urban squash programs squash in the u.s the public model is having a little bit of trouble catching on but it's it's coming along it's it's getting better but yeah just wanted to kind of get final discussion going around you know what are these kind of barriers to entry how can we make people feel more comfortable how can we break down some of these barriers i mean for for me in a nutshell it's it's exclusivity um as i said it, i think it's getting slightly better but as much as you know we hear about numbers being touted how the game is growing in in the u.s which are factually correct don't be wrong 
Um, as I said, I, I feel like the status quo is being is, is still being upheld for the most part. And I mean, I, I personally, I just want to see, as Chris, as you just said, you know, public public squash attempts are are few and far between. I think making the game more accessible, just literally to anyone and everyone. I think we need to follow the models that you know that, that we see abroad in, in England and and in Egypt to a certain extents. Um, Arthur, I don't know what it's like for you, what what it was like for you in Ireland. Stu, same thing for you in Scotland. But I would I, I would I would opine that it's it's not quite as as exclusive as it is here. As, as as Chris and I said, you know that first first tournament, you know, rolling up to some country club in Greenwich. Like, unfortunately, that's still a big part, you know, mainland Philly in, in Greenwich, the hotbeds of squash still, a lot of the bastions of squash are still in these hallowed halls that, you know, you can't get into. It doesn't matter how much, I mean, how much money, it doesn't matter. You, you need to, you can't really strong arm your way in there. So I think breaking free of that mold is, is a big step for, 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 for inclusivity, for making the game more accessible to, uh, to the masses. And with that, I think then we'll get better representation across all lines, whether it be race, it's going to gender, socioeconomic status, whatever. Yeah, I think I just think one of the biggest barriers is just the cost of it. You know, it's just, I mean, when you think about a sport like, let's say, basketball, right? You just need a basketball. You just need a ball, you know? In, in my opinion, I don't understand why why squash is so expensive because the rackets, like, you, you need a racket and shoes and goggles, you know? Like, I don't get why tournament fees are so high and, and why the – the entry, like just to be a U.S. member, um, is so expensive, and 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 just like the access to courts, there's not many places where you can just rock up and say, "Hey, I've got 20 bucks. Can I get? Can I get on this court?" You know, and that's not a thing. You know, you can go New York City. You can walk down any block and find a basketball hoop, right? You can you can find a baseball field. You can find a soccer field. You know, but you can't find squash courts around. You know, and granted, squash courts are expensive. I get that, but. There's got to be more, and similar to the public squash model, there's got to be a way to make the game more accessible to, to people that don't have connections to SEA programs or um, or financial wealth. You know, there's got to be there's got to be a way. You know, and I mean, I don't know the answer, but something to think about. Yeah, just touching on that. I mean, we would Stuart and I would have had a similar experience growing up playing squash across the pond in my local club. It was about twenty five pounds a year for membership to play national events. It was a tenner, and it wasn't expensive to play tournaments. It was no hotels per se. It was like staying at other squash houses. And yeah, so it was it was grand. Once you had your racket and your shoes, it was happy days, away you go. And even from a coaching perspective, in our local club, we had a couple of guys who were, one man in particular, who organized it all. And it was, you know, for six weeks, you pay like six pounds for, for coaching. Now, that's not realistic, but I, I definitely think there's certainly something between the two extremes of, how expensive it can be to how you know how it was maybe back in the day across the pond locally here is like two hundred dollars to enter a national tournament which is a scandal it's so rooted in wealth in the u.s that it makes it challenging to break out because we think about some of the things we're talking about right like private schools into the top top universities in the US and a lot of the clubs that have been very successful historically don't have a problem spending $150 for a tournament and so it'll be an interesting time to see if if one if that mold can be broken and I think that will be challenged in the next couple of years, hopefully, with some momentum. And and then and then once that happens, I think guys like you, Chris, Jamal, you know, you're gonna be 
leading the way in terms of helping make make uh, the younger generation excited to be a part of it, right? And Chris and I, when we talked offline, like there is some resistance from younger players to want to be a part of this because maybe they don't feel like they fit in, right? And I think that's the thing that's that's definitely, you know, in my mind, like the heartbreaking thing about how can we make that change? And most of the guys on this call, it's probably tough to do that, but we can, I guess, advocate for it. Certainly could. For me, one of the most frustrating things, and it, for me, it actually started with um, seeing prize money or lack thereof in, in in tournaments, especially in the U.S. But saying this since ever since I got into the game, there's so much money in this game, but there's somehow not enough money for important initiatives. Um, as as Chris said, I mean, it, it is kind of weird because as a coach in the U.S., I somewhat, I guess, you know, somewhat benefit from this system. Um, but I, I definitely constantly try not to, you know, turn into like a price gouging thing. But I mean, the, the, the cost of lessons, clinics, you guys said tournaments, uh, memberships, um, how even referee exams, like that's going to drive out a large percentage of, of the American population. And from what I can see, as I said, like things are not in that regard, things aren't getting better. They're getting, they're getting worse. I mean, tournaments, I mean, tournaments were expensive enough as is. When I was playing uh, as a junior, roughly 15 years ago, and I remember, like you know, the most expensive tournaments were 65 or 70 dollars. I mean, the, the the rate of inflation hasn't gone up, you know, the same 100 percent or 200 percent to justify what they cost now. So if it was expensive back then, we can only imagine, you know, how how much more ridiculous it's as as as, as Arthur said. It's it's extortion in a way. I I would like to hear from you know the powers that be as to why. It is that way. And what we can do to truly make the game more accessible, we can talk about the numbers all we want, but how, how can we bring the game to the masses Then we can see equity amongst all, all isms, all lines? That's, that's what I would like to know from the powers that be. Like I said, as, as, as Chris said, we can advocate for it. We can't actually, we ourselves can't do anything about it. We are not you know, part of the governing bodies, but that's one of the first questions that I would have, I guess, for, for our governing body. Yeah, I, I think one one of the biggest things for for me personally is like I, I don't I don't like to dwell on things that I that are a little bit out of my control, right? And I, this is my big mantra with my team: if it's out of your control, then let it go, you know. Um, so, but something like this, it, it, you're right; it's not entirely down to us. But there are things that that like we can do um, slightly, you know. To like for myself, I, I'm in this position now as a head coach, you know. Um, the first SCA person in, in, in that position, you know, and so this is, in a way, like, I hope to inspire literally every possible urban squash kid, sorry, SCA kid, to, to literally want to be, there's someone in this position, right? That means that is attainable. That means that this could very much be you, right? And, and I'm using my window and my platform to empower that, right? To, to have these conversations. I'm, I'm now on the squash-wise board, and, and that's been a great experience, you know, and just talking to these kids about, look, I, I'm a product of your environment. Like I, I've been through this, you know, and you are going to go through challenges, but that shouldn't stop you from, from pursuing this, you know, and that shouldn't stop you from, from breaking these barriers and, and putting yourself in rooms where, where you have a say and when you have some power, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate not to be in, like, when I sit at these board meetings, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by very wealthy and powerful people and, and they're sitting down and listening to me and, and taking my perspective into account, you know, and, and then, so, so for me to look back at everything that I've gone through, I would say is hundred percent worth it, you know, cause now I'm at the platform where 
I can provide an opportunity for every other kid that's coming after me, you know? And, and so that's what I like. And one of the things that I encourage a lot of the college coaches is like, when, when recruiting comes around, obviously we're all trying to win. We're all trying to be as competitive as we can be. Right. And, and a lot of these SCA programs want their kids to play college squash in some room or, or some way from past experiences. I, I know that when a coach gets an SCA kid, email you know they're not as attentive to it you know and one of the biggest things is you 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 should treat that kid just like you would a normal recruit even if it's not going to be for your school you need to have that conversation because to that kid that's huge that that is a big moment for that person just to even have that dialogue with with a chris sacker from columbia or the Stu crawford from upenn you know like or or you know like that that's huge you know and so so that's one of the biggest things that i, I like i'm kind of advocating and, and and pushing and just to kind of create that platform for SEA kids to kind of look in that, in that, in that way. Um, but also from, we just got to get more kids into the game of squash, whether they end up playing college squash or not. It's, it's just a great game. It's got so many benefits and so many life lessons. So I, I think it's something that, that needs to get, people need to have more access to it, man, because it's life changing, man. It really is. Well, yeah. I mean, can't thank you guys enough for, uh, you know, given us a little bit more insight. I think it'll be, I think it'll be great for, you know, our listeners who I imagine are, are 99.5% squash players to, to hear this and, and open up, open up some eyes. And, you know, my hope would be that the next time they see player from SEA, from any program, they're going to want to make that person feel more comfortable being at their club, being at a tournament, because that just makes them want to want to keep going, want to be more involved. And I think that's that's the biggest thing I've been thinking about in the squash world. Obviously, we could have talked all night about the different different layers to to this all. But uh, yeah, I mean, really, really awesome hearing from you guys. Hopefully someday, hopefully someday we'll get an SCA national champion in the U.S. Junior Circuit. Right. How cool would that be? Who will be the first U.S. national champion out of urban squash? Who will be the first world champion out of U.S. squash? Right, like who is gonna represent their country on the on the world stage? Not not U.S. squash. I mean, urban squash Toronto, right? Or uh, urban squash Columbia. Like you know, we need to provide a platform for these young players to do that, and then that right will be a catalyst for the younger generation below them so um yeah good point hopefully hopefully they hear this and get inspired you know um like jamal <laughs> said though like if you go back to to jamal's time getting recruited in college and u.s squash we've come a long way we, we've actually come a long way but there's still a lot more to go so that's a little positive you know which is good it's not as bad as we're, you know it is there's definitely room there definitely a lot of room there Legends. Absolute legends. And it's great. Like just you guys are super role models and it shows. And I suppose the next thing, obviously, you guys are some of the best coaches in the world. If you get a kid from the SEA program becoming a world champion, then you'd have just an amazing story. Yeah. Has there never, there never been a SEA kid that's even been junior national team? Wasn't there a girl who was pretty good? Uh, there was, there's been a couple, uh, Jesse Pacheco, uh, is the highest ever finisher in the rankings and she finished fifth, I think one year. That's okay. the highest we've ever gotten. She's the girl that had the Apple TV. Oh, oh that's, no, that's Raina. That's Raina. Oh, okay. Jesenia is a city squash alum that went to Cornell. Um, and she finished fifth at one of the U S opens, which was huge. 
Um, yeah, had a great had a great college career at Cornell, just yeah. just behind first, behind my time. First time All American. Uh, she's the only SCA All American actually. How close did you get, Chris? Huh? How close did you get? Uh, not to All American. No, um, I got close to being the first national champion on a team, but that fell short. That would have been cool. <laughs> so I'm hoping but this this guy, up. yeah, this guy over four years. I mean. I, I didn't I I only got to watch you from a distance in your third and fourth year, but first year, I mean I would have been I would have been beaten up on you bad. And then by year four, <laughs> year four, I was watching Chris play at individual nationals. I was like, where did this guy learn how to play? This came out of nowhere. And while well, you were captaining the baseball team too at St. Lawrence, right? Yeah, that was that was the only year I got to go to individuals, and I will never forget that. I was up I, every match I played that weekend was a five game match, and I hadn't played squash for like a week because the nationals was before that. So yeah, it was. I came across Blake. I was up to love and had no more in the tank, man. But that that would have been cool. That would have been bit, awesome. Bit, bit of that post college squash bender, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> had a couple of those. <laughs> a couple road sodas. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Slightly. took a few years off the old life. <laughs> so you kept playing baseball then? I just yeah, assumed yeah. when you were talking earlier that you'd maybe like discovered squash when you got. No, I, I, um, Little League World Series too, right? Yeah, yeah. I played in the Little League World Series, and uh, out of that team, I think six or seven guys are playing professional baseball right now. I'm one of the three that are not, and I wouldn't change it for anything. You oh, know, Chris. I'm, Chris, I'm just curious. What organization did you play with? What did you play for? Uh, Liga the youth Paulino. service. So, so it's called Liga Paulino. Have you guys ever heard oh, yeah, of? Yeah, uh, yeah, the lefty, uh, Danny Amante. Yeah, Danny Amante. Danny Amante. Yeah. He's a ringer. He was 14 years old playing in the Little League World Series. I mean, just dominating. Um, so that league, we were banned for. Our league was banned for. I think it was 15 years from the Williamsport Little League World Series. So we had to play in the Kyle Ripken World Series. Um, the year that that we we that what we that we made it. Yeah. We qualified for Williamsport, but we just couldn't go. I'm not up in my little league baseball, but how many World Series are there? <laughs> I was just about to say, Stuart, Stuart, do you know how many worlds there are? <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough that the U.S. called the, the regular World Series. Yeah, anymore. yeah. <laughs> now we've got like 17 mini versions. <laughs> that I agree with, Stu. That I never understood why the World Series is called the World Series. Yeah, don't worry, the rest because of the world Americans. doesn't understand either. <laughs> because America. Because well, luckily, America. yeah, luckily for the NBA, they've got a Canadian team in there, so they they call it the world championships, but shout out Raptors. <laughs> Current champs. Current yeah. world champ. Not until LeBron has something to say about that soon, but we'll see. But, but yeah, Chris, is, I was going to same thing. For, like, I grew up with, uh, I don't know if they still exist, Latin Souls and then uh, the Bonnies. And the same Bonnie. thing. Yep, I was I was a Bonnie kid. But yeah, once again, like pre-squash, that was every every Saturday. I mean, well, every day pretty much in summertime, but that was my life. I stopped playing when I was in 11th grade, I believe. Mostly, I mean, just fell in love with squash too much. Also, shortstops, this was like right around the advent of, uh, you know, the A-Rods, the Jeters. Coaches were looking for the 6'3", 220-pound kids, and I was 5'1". <laughs> I don't even think I cracked 100. Yeah, I think I was like around 100 pounds. Had, had, had an arm, but coaches were like, yeah, we're not looking for you. So I was like, all right, well, to squash I go. Size is not a hindrance. You're growth spot at 25 or something, Jamal. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still waiting for puberty to hit me, Stu. Yeah. Like Jamal, whether he's whether Jamal's talking about when he was 10, 15, 20, or 25, <laughs> he's like, the same I, was, I, I just maybe cracked five five. I was 112 pounds, maybe. 
<laughs> Jamal, Jamal, to be honest with you, man, I've been this size since I was 12, man. <laughs> like, I was, I was at one point the tallest guy on my Little League baseball team, man. And, hey, I was the same height pretty much. <laughs> well, um, Chris, thanks again so much for taking the time out to come on to the show and to speak to us. And thanks to you both, Jamal and Chris, for opening up and sharing some of your experiences through Junior Squash. It made for super inspiring listening. You guys are amazing coaches, role models, just all-around legends, really, and feel very lucky to be able to call you guys friends. Um, really looking forward to getting this episode out there, and yeah, look forward to us all getting together when all this is passed and having a couple of beers, and maybe, Jamal, you can cook. Woo. I'll throw down on the grill. I mean, it's going to be meat with the side of meat, but yeah. <laughs> I'm going to invite me. Arthur. Oh, used to, right? <laughs> Arthur, make sure you shamelessly tell people to, like... Uh, subscribe and uh, share we gotta we gotta get oh the, yeah gotta get we, the social media game up yeah, what are we, we looking do. at on twitter now are we up to are we up to four followers are we double digits uh, oh. excuse me 20 <laughs> 21 i think you'll find Ooh, 21 some more shares on there too instagram there instagram's been slowly it's been slowly making its way up what are we at 273 oh yeah i got a bit desperate today guys Go on. I shared it with Arthur and Chris, but I basically tweeted about a go episode and I just tagged Rami, Nicole David, Shabini, <laughs> Shabagi. I tagged them all. And then I, Shameless. I added up the, to- the total number of followers of all the people I tagged was 650,000 or something like that. Wow. And that was about four hours ago, and we've had zero additional followers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't catch that. on. Don't catch on, man. Twitter is a dying platform for Actually, old people. Oh man, you gotta you gotta get Ibrahim Khan on here. He's another rock star, <laughs> right, Saki? Eves, yeah, what a legend. Actually, he was a squash player at St. Lawrence, and now is like a legit musician in Pakistan. So this is this is a cool story. So this guy, this this kid from Pakistan, his his father was in the U in the Pakistani army, I think, right? And Ibrahim uh, was born in like Denver or something on U.S. soil. So he was an American citizen. So he came over to the States, comes to St. Lawrence, like with really not much connection. So we knew he like played the guitar. He would talk about it a little bit and we knew he sang a little bit. But then like one day on on the squash bus or whatever, he busts out his guitar. I don't even know if I actually saw him on the squash bus before we went to the community center there to the pub um, and he was playing. And he sounded like like any U.S. musician with an acoustic guitar. Like he, his accent was just like immediately dropped off. He had like an unreal singing voice, and you wouldn't even know it was him. Like if you closed your eyes, like he could mimic like you know anybody. It was it was crazy. I remember what that one song? He he had that one song that he played so well, man. And, I can't remember what it was either. And then Elijah, Elijah would do, uh, rap, yeah. do some rap there. I used to come for those too. <laughs> those are some great bus rides, man. Some great memories. Yeah. Those are the days. Yeah. Well, guys, seriously, man, thank you. Thank you very much for having me and, and thinking of me. And, um, and, and obviously just want to give a shout out to everyone that's helped me along my way and all my friends and, and family and peeps. Uh, appreciate you guys, you guys as well. Again, let's keep inspiring people and, Keep pushing the barriers, man. Keep challenging people left and right. Left and right, baby. For sure. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you guys. Thanks, Chris.
Okay, fellas, we'll wrap up there. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jamal. Thanks again to Chris Fernandez and Alex Goff for coming on the show. Really appreciate you guys taking up some of your free time. Big shout out again to Jamal and Chris. Great talkers. Really inspiring stuff. Really made for compelling listening. Legends. Happy days. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. Every like and share goes a very long way. And every Twitter follower goes an even longer way. Currently sitting at 21. Lovely stuff. That's progress. Slow, but progress nonetheless. All right. Cheers. Good stuff, guys. That was awesome. I'm feeling fresh as a daisy out here. Man. <laughs>